My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle. Welcome to War of the Rebellion, stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon Meowser, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. Chapter 6 General Hooker takes command, Camp Humphreys. Official order assigning General Joseph Hooker to command Army of Potomac. Camp Humphreys. Colonel Allen's health fails. Lieutenant Colonel John H. Kane assumes command of regiment. Changes and promotions in regiment. Description of Camp Humphreys. Routine of camp life. Bayonet exercise and skirmish drill. Religious exercises in camp. Army of Potomac, reorganized by General Hooker. President Lincoln visits Army of Potomac. Grand Review of Army in Honor of President. April 26th, Marching Orders Received. Regiment on Picket Duty at Fords of Rappahannock. Army Crosses Rappahannock. Confederate Surprised. Order from General Hooker Congratulating Army. Battle of Chancellorsville Begins. 5th Corps supports 11th Corps, Humphreys Division under fire, takes position at front, Regiment Sports Battery, 155th and 131st Pennsylvania Volunteers feel the enemy, affecting incident of General Whipple's death, Humphreys Division covers retreat of army across Rappahannock, strategic ability of General Hooker, casualties. On the 26th day of January, 1863, the official order assigning General Joseph Hooker to the command of the Army of the Potomac was read at dress parade to all the regiments of the Army. A few days after this announcement, the 155th moved a few miles nearer to Falmouth, to what was probably the finest camp and winter quarters it ever occupied during its term of service, known as Camp Humphreys. On February 3rd, 1863, a few days after the Mud March, this new camp had been laid out in approved military form, with parade campus, fine company streets, officers' quarters, and quartermaster tents, and all the paraphernalia of a genuinely comfortable camp for winter quarters. Bad sanitary arrangements in the construction of the quarters in the previous camps and winter quarters and the resultant Sickness were the reasons for the perfection of drainage and sanitary precautions attained in Camp Humphreys. The memories of the good health and comforts and pleasant days in this camp during February and March and a large part of April, 1863, in the minds of the 155th Regiment will never be forgotten. Indeed, so picturesque and attractive was this encampment 
that the artist of the regiment reduced its attractive appearance to paper and had the sketch copied and lithographed in Pittsburgh. And many copies were sold by the settler in charge of the enterprise. As a historic souvenir of that period, this bird's-eye view of Camp Humphreys is reproduced. This camp was remarkable, too, from the fact that it was occupied by all the regiments composing Humphreys' division at this time. First, Colonel P. H. Allabach's headquarters, with brigade flag floating, is shown in the left of the foreground of the picture. Next, the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteer Regimental quarters in the foreground, with the regiment out on dress parade. Next, the 123rd Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, Colonel John B. Clark, following this, the 133rd Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, Colonel Allobeck, and lastly, the 131st Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, Colonel F.B. Speakman. The other four Pennsylvania regiments of Humphrey's division, composing General E.B. Tyler's brigade, are not entirely visible in this picture of Camp Humphreys, being partially concealed by the woods. Changes occurring in the regiment Colonel Allen, whose strenuous and untiring labors and exposure in the campaigns of Antietam and Fredericksburg had seriously affected his health finally broke down. After weeks of suffering in the field, his complaint inflammatory rheumatism, not yielding to medical treatment, he was compelled, most reluctantly, to relinquish command of the regiment and accept a sick leave in order to secure home treatment. To one of his soldierly instincts, and with his fine record, his retirement was most disappointing to the men of his command, who without exception, honored and esteemed him. During Colonel Allen's leave of absence for his health, the command of the regiment was assumed by Lieutenant Colonel John H. Kane, also a most popular and attractive officer. Captain Frank Van Gorder, the regimental quartermaster, resigned and returned to Pittsburgh immediately after the Battle of Fredericksburg. This vacancy in the quartermaster's office caused the promotion of James B. Palmer, from Sergeant of Company C, to a captaincy and regimental quartermaster position he filled most credibly until the end of the war. The resignation of Captain Charles Klotz of Company G, already noted as so loyally guarding the knapsacks of the company when it crossed the Potomac at Shepherdstown on the reconnaissance with the Corn Exchange Regiment, the 118th Pennsylvania, to discover the position taken by Lee's army on its retreat from Antietam, was accepted by Colonel Allen immediately following the Battle of Fredericksburg. Sergeant Major George F. Morgan, of Company E, was promoted and transferred to succeed Captain Charles Klotz. The death of Captain Lee Anschutz, of Company C at Fredericksburg, left a vacancy which was filled by First Lieutenant James S. Palmer. Dr. James M. Hoffman, surgeon of the regiment, who had been transferred from the 99th Pennsylvania Infantry in October 1862, was dismissed March 22, 1863. Dr. Joseph A. E. Reed succeeded Dr. Hoffman by promotion from assistant surgeon of the regiment. Dr. F. Stockton, Wilson, became the assistant surgeon of the regiment at Antietam. And Sergeant Arthur W. Bell, of Company E, was promoted to first lieutenant, 
to fill a vacancy occurred by the resignation of Lieutenant Miles P. Sigworth of Company G. Lieutenant Bell was a brave, efficient officer and conscientious in the discharge of all of his duties. The promotion of Captain Alfred L. Pearson of Company A to be major on December 31, 1862, occasioned the commissioning of First Lieutenant Frank J. Pritchard to be captain, who served for three months when his resignation was accepted. He was succeeded in turn as captain by John C. Stewart. Captain Benjamin B. Kerr, who organized Company B, was compelled by ill health in the camp to tender his resignation on April 3, 1863. His position as captain was filled by Henry W. Grubbs, promoted from first lieutenant. First Lieutenant George W. Lohr and Second Lieutenant Benjamin F. Jennings, who were also active organizers of their company, also tendered their resignations during this period following the Battle of Fredericksburg. James J. Hall, who, with Samuel Kilgore and Alexander Carson, had recruited Company D, was discharged on Surgeon's Certificate December 15, 1862. First Lieutenant Samuel Kilgore was promoted to the captaincy of the company. Second Lieutenant Edward Meeker of Company G, who commanded the company at Fredericksburg, resigned January 10, 1862 because of ill health. And First Lieutenant John T. Denniston of Company C was promoted to captain and transferred November 10, 1863 to the staff of Brigadier General Thomas A. Rowley, U.S. Volunteers. Regimental Quarters, Camp Life the location occupied by the 155th and other regiments in Camp Humphreys was well selected, all the companies having good wide streets. There were also regimental quarters and campus, and quarters for the brigade commander and staff officers. The regiments occupying Camp Humphreys were furnished with axes and sent to the woods nearby to chop trees and saplings from which to build log huts for winter quarters, each hut containing quarters for three men. The chimney was made of sticks and mud, and surmounted by a box to convey away the smoke. The roof was made of wood or slats, where, obtainable, and in other cases tents were used. The interior of the quarters thus constructed was very comfortable, being daily inspected, the clothing aired and every precaution of a sanitary nation was taken to prevent disease. Virginia pines, being winter greens, were planted in rows along the streets and borders of the camp and arches of the same material were constructed in front of the quarters of each colonel in the division. The streets, the parade ground, and officers' quarters were policed regularly so that it could be said to be a model camp of neatness and cleanliness and comfort. A very frequent practical joke, perpetrated by soldiers leaving the camp in the middle of the night for the outposts, was the covering, unobserved, by the slumbering occupants of the quarters of the chimney with a board or other obstruction, which was sure to result in the smoking out of the inmates. Of course, by the time this occurred, the perpetrators of the mischief would be far away at their distant posts, unsuspected. The colonel and all the commissioned officers of the regiment at headquarters had servants or men detailed during these winter quarters to chop the firewood into nice pieces for their daily use. These sticks of fuel were generally stacked up at night adjacent to each officer's quarters, and when no guard was on duty, as was frequently the case, the returning pickets on the winter's nights, to save themselves the trouble of chopping firewood, would purloin an armful of this nicely chopped wood and hide it in their own tents for use. 
Frequently, officers would be roused by this breach of duty and would raise a rumpus, shouting and calling for guards and possibly using some profanity. In such cases, however, the officer being in his retiring costume never followed through the snow the absconding wood thief. On one or two occasions, however, watches were set for these night prowlers, and several were caught in the act and made examples of by being required the next day in camp to carry a good-sized log on their shoulders, whilst the guard patrolled his beat to prevent their escape. The result of this vigilance made the wood robbers more particular as to the officer upon whom they committed their depredations, and the shrewd ones were wont to relieve the non-combatant officers of the regiment of their fuel. The worthy chaplain, whose peaceful instincts they knew, could be safely relied upon to prevent their being shot, even if caught in the act, became their victim, and as a result, his woodpile was regularly diminished, and the good man to his credit, be it said, never raised a disturbance or made a complaint. Some of the most exemplary and devote comrades of the regiment, and regular attendants upon the sermons of the chaplain in this camp, it is sad to relate, were also the most regular attendants at his woodpile, whilst he was in the arms of Morpheus. The morale of the men of Humphrey's division was never better than it was during their performance of picket duties, drilling and reviews, and the discharging of soldierly duties, such as guard mounts, wagon guards, and an occasional scouting party in this camp. As previously stated, the sanitary condition of the camp was perfect, and the hospital cots unoccupied. The bugle call, Come and Get Your Quinine, for those suffering from temporary or imaginary ailments to report at the regimental doctor's tent, met with few responses in this camp and formed a marked contrast to the experience of sickness, disabilities, and excuses from duty in preceding camps of the division. An unfailing and enjoyable daily bugle call was, Come and Get Your Mail, being the receipt of letters from home, a great antidote for homesickness, the joy on these occasions were surpassed only by the receipt of boxes by express, from home containing rolls of fresh butter, jellies, and many home delicacies. During the long winter evenings, continuing until spring set in, many recreations were introduced in camp to relieve the dull monotony of the soldier's life. Thus, at regimental headquarters a glee club was formed, and often late in the wee small hours of the night, from that quarter might be heard the sweet notes of Lorena, in the old Louisiana lowlands, and many other familiar ballads. Membership in this camp choir was not restricted to officers, but discipline was relaxed, and the private soldier known to have a good voice, or to play a musical instrument, was often excused from camp or picket duty to permit his attendance at Colonel Pearson's headquarters to participate with Pearson, Adjutant Montooth, Sergeant Ralston, Sergeant Harry Campbell of Company B. Quartermaster Sergeant George B. Fulton, Corporal Robert Kolb, and other talented performers. Many of the regiment who performed on musical instruments had their violins, banjos, accordions, and mandolins sent from home during winter quarters, so that even in the company quarters, select quartets would often be formed. Frequent cotillions and hoedowns were executed most gracefully in the company streets with Corporal Bob Kolb of Company B, the regimental fiddler calling the figures. A snapshot sketch of one of these festive occasions drawn by the regimental artist had been reproduced for this history, in which portraits of Sergeant Walter McCabe, Dick Murphy, Bill Jones, and Pat Lyon, well-known comrades, appear as forming the set in the hoedown. Professor Bob Kolb is seated, rosening the bow vigorously. 
also heard nightly, but earlier in the evening, was the very loud and animated singing of religious songs or hymns by Company K, noted as being the most religious company of the regiment, having a number of preachers as officers, and elders and active church members in the ranks. This company was from Armstrong County, Pennsylvania, and in their lives and conduct were an exemplary Christians as were those of Cromwell's army, although not quite so austere and fanatical. Company E, a Pittsburgh company, was camped on one side, and Company B, another Pittsburgh company, was camped on the other side of Company K. The sweet strains of camp meeting hymns were rendered in stentorian tones, and the nightly rendition of these devout songs, such as The Sweet By and By, In Heaven Above Where All is Love, In the Green Fields of Eden, etc., shouted by voices more vigorous than musical of this good company, very much disturbed the nightly worldly enjoyments and pleasures of Company E and B on either side of K. This sonorous rendition of sacred music in connection with the sounds of prayer meeting, in so close proximity to the two companies named, was but little appreciated by the members of the latter companies, their piety being less demonstrative. A very different feature enlivening other companies in this camp was that of card-playing. Prevalent during the hours of the devotional exercises in Company K, it must be confessed also that occasional private games of poker were indulged in by members of various companies, and that the stakes, to make the game interesting, were not always limited to a mere nominal sum. Discipline was relaxed on many pleasant days in these winter quarters, and officers and men engaged in pitching quoits, while others procured boxing gloves and gave exhibitions of the manly art of self-defense. These diversions never interfered with the respect due Major Pearson, who often took an active part in these amusements. He was an excellent boxer and also surpassed as a pitcher of quoits. In fact, an era of good feeling was engendered between officers and men by this daily camp life, through which they became better known to each other, and also more attached. As indicating another variety of young men existing in the regiment, there were not a few in these winter quarters who sent home for school books, abandoned on enlisting, and resumed their studies as opportunity gave them the time. In some cases, this occurred with such success that the soldier students were qualified, on returning home, to enter upon business or professional careers, and some attained distinction without further school or college education. Drilling was not neglected, and the amount of attention paid to drilling the men in the bayonet exercise and the skirmish drill and target firing in which the officers and men of the regiment became very proficient was of invaluable benefit to the service and the subsequent active campaigns in which the regiment participated. This bayonet, or skirmish drill, superseded early in the war the old-time tactics coming down from the days of Waterloo, which was simply a useless waste of time and muscle in teaching a regiment of infantry how to form a hollow square and to kneel down and, with fixed bayonets, receive a charge of cavalry. It was found quite early in the Civil War that, however obliging the cavalry were in Napoleon and Wellington's time in charging these hollow squares of infantry, thus posted to receive them that Jeb Stuart's and Fitzhugh Lee's Confederate cavalry never manifested the slightest disposition to fight Union veterans that way. It cannot probably be said that any members of the 155th, however eager for the fray, ever felt disappointed at the failure of the Confederates to impale their cavalry on the bayonets of the regiment. During camp life in the pleasant winter quarters of Camp Humphreys, 
Many subordinate officers of Alabac's brigade seemed to be afflicted with various minor ailments, such as cramps, etc., for which no other remedy seemed so officiatious as frequent doses of government commissary, meaning alcohol. For a short period only, during the absence of Colonel Alabac, Colonel John B. Clark, commanding the 123rd Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers, was placed in command of the brigade. Being a minister of the gospel and strictly temperate, he refused to sign the usual requisitions of officers for commissary, except for urgent medical purposes. Just at this particular period, it is stated that cramps became very prevalent among certain officers of the 155th, and the situation became peculiarly distressing on account of the inability of these officers, by reason of Colonel Clark's stand, to procure their favorite remedy. Lieutenant Alex Carson of Company D, while suffering greatly from the deprivation of his favorite beverage and medicine, with a canteen strung on his shoulder, visited Colonel Clark at brigade headquarters and presented the depressed condition of himself and his companions in so touching a manner that the good colonel set aside his scruples for the nonce and endorsed the requisition, enabling the genial yet thirsty lieutenant to procure just one canteen full of the coveted medicine. With a countenance expressive of great satisfaction, Lieutenant Carson hastened to his quarters where he speedily procured assistance to alter the formal requisition by placing after the figure one the figure four, so that the amended requisition would read fourteen instead of one. Thus amended, the requisition was duly honored by the commissary, and the cramps and kindred diseases affecting so many officers of the 155th, after a few doses of this sovereign remedy, disappeared like magic. During the occupancy of Camp Humphreys, the regiment was without a chaplain. Expecting to secure one soon, Lieutenant Colonel Kane directed the erection of a chapel adjacent to the regimental camp. The boys of the religious Company K, and many from other companies detailed for the task of building the chapel, entered upon the work with great alacrity and labored with diligence and pleasure. Private D.K. Stevenson of Company E, who left a Methodist pulpit to shoulder a musket, was chosen architect of the sacred sculpture, and Lieutenant Alex Carson of Company D was made superintendent of construction and had charge of the gang of soldier laborers that felled the trees and squared the timbers. Among the Clarion and Armstrong County boys were many expert woodsmen, and the work went on in good shape for several weeks, according to the elaborate plans. But, alas, before the completion and dedication of the chapel, the Chancellorsville campaign was on, the regiment broke camp, and the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers chapel was never completed. However, before it was actually roofed, the boys of Lieutenant Carson's detail had a dance in it, and the dual-set strains of the old-time tunes were duly brought forth from Bob Culp's fiddle, Andy White of Company H, calling the regulation country dance figures. This is going to be the end of our chapter for today. I know it's only a mere 23 minutes long, but the episodes for this chapter need to be split up into two or three parts. And to make up for that, I do have a bunch of interesting content for you to follow up this episode on over on my website, rebellionstories.com. I have nothing to sell there. So come on over and check out some of the content I'm providing. Uh, it's really exploratory. That's for you to 
read and kind of like get linked to. First off, I think it's only appropriate that we add actually a lot more content from this episode for you guys at home. And I'm going to do that in the way with drawings and sketches and pictures and paintings over at my website. And hopefully I'll be able to convert it soon to like a scrolling version. It's kind of what I'm aiming for. So anyway, I've got a wartime sketch drawing from the Maltese Cross of Camp Humphreys that's going up. And I'm also going to include a certain story involving snowballs for you to read. Although it's not from the 155th Pennsylvania, I thought it's something that would just pair nice with the uh, kind of like winter encampment that they have set up there. The next thing I want to talk about is the music that is discussed in this episode. In fact, every episode that I do that has music written down or discussed, I will bring it to you so that you can listen to it. Now, it's not going to be part of my podcast unless I have it commissioned. But I'll just find links for a lot of this music, and that way you can go to my website and either just see it on there or get linked to it so you can go and listen to it. For example... You can watch the song Lorena on my website. It's great. Uh, but I could only find information in the lyrics to In the Louisiana Lowlands, probably because it was a racist minstrel song. So it's probably not going to keep, you know, as popular as some of the uh, non-versions of that. Also, the song Sweet By and By, I've included a link to that as well. And guys, just listen to it, okay? And tell me if you would also be able to gamble why a choir of godly men were singing that next to you. That was must have been a surreal experience for sure. Oh man, talking about stealing wood piles and smoking out your friends in the cabin. What, what an eventful time of mischievous cretins causing low-level havoc during the winter months must have been. And when you read a lot of the accounts from that time when they were staying on winter quarters, everything was monotonous because you only did the same routine over and over and over again. So there was nowhere to go and nothing to do. So having little accidents like that happen is a definite, you know, way to keep your morale up. I'm also going to go ahead and include a picture of General Hooker on my website, but I'm just going to have a link that just goes to... I mean, he's got a Wikipedia, and um, the Battlefield Trust has a great article that you can go to. I think I'll just probably link both of those. But when it comes to major generals, um, guys who have had, like, whole books written about him, I'd rather just let somebody else handle it and just kind of stay just focused on the regiments that I'm covering rather than kind of what's going on as a whole on the outside. And with that, my friends, go ahead and check out my website, rebellionstories.com. If you can, on whatever platform you, on whatever platform you are listening to this, please like, subscribe, or share, or comment, whatever it is. Uh, every little bit helps, and uh, it helps get my channel kind of seen by other people as well, especially when you like it or five-star it if you're on Apple and that kind of thing. Next week, we'll carry up where we left off. And we will either finish the chapter or we'll have another shortened version like this. So it could be like three 25-minute 
long episodes were I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. If I feel like it, we might go to a whole be a whole hour episode. So, have a fantastic week, and I will see you in the next one. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. He cried, give me water and just one little crumb and my mother she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister so gentle, good and true that I'll meet her up in heaven in my faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded gold of blue.